This morning, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Philippians 2, we're going to look at verses 14 to 18. You know, Philippians 2 is the chapter Paul begs the church to be of one mind and one accord at the beginning, and then he goes on to say, let this mind be in you. This is how this is accomplished if you have the same mind that the Lord Jesus Christ had, which was one that he was willing to humble himself and be obedient, he says, even to the point of death. And he goes on to say, but because he was willing to do that, that God didn't just leave him there. He just didn't leave him in the dust, but he highly exalted him above everything so that every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess. Actually, we'll start reading in verse 12 because he says, because of that, because of what you see that the Lord Jesus Christ did, the attitude he had that we should have also, and also the fact that God has exalted him and that every knee will bow, he says a big therefore in verse 12. Because of all of what I said, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed and not as in my presence only, he says, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his own pleasure. He's saying we should have enough respect because of the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of where he is, that we're going to work out with fear and trembling our own salvation. But he doesn't just leave it there. He says also God gives you that command, but he'll also give you the power and the grace to do it because he lives in you. So he says He's not only going to give you that desire, but he's also going to give you the will and the power to obey. One thing he goes on to say is, first John deals with this in a big way, but Paul says these should be the characteristics of a son of God. And that's what he goes on to say here in verse 14. Here's how you live out that working out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is what we're going to look at today, verses 14 to 18. And he says, do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. That's how children of God live without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yea, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Do all things without complaining and disputing. So I'm really, this message is, I'm preaching this to me. I mean, this is for everybody, isn't it? It's like one of those reminder type messages, but oh, it's really for me. So I'm going to have a little game here. It's like easy. It'll be easy to win the prize if I had a prize to give. I mean, actually, I probably do. I've got this has been hanging around up here forever. Anybody can answer this, win this game, I'll give it to them. But anyways, so listen to these list of names of people and tell me who the odd man out is. Um, the Apostle Paul, Rodney Dangerfield, Rush Limbaugh, and Rashid Wallace. Now, everybody's not going to know who all those guys are. Rodney Dangerfield, he made a career by complaining. You know, he's the guy who's always, I don't get no respect, you know. The doctor took one look at me and slapped my mother. You know, he'd had jokes like that all the time. Never got any respect. For those of you that are sports fans, you might know who Rashid Wallace is. He is the only high school player that was rejected. They would not allow him to be on the McDonald's High School All-American team. And here's why. As a pro, he received 41 technical fouls in one half of a single season. 41 technical fouls. He was called the king of complaining. <laughs> king of complaining. 
Rush Limbaugh was another one I named. Always complaining about the Democrats. I don't think a Democrat has ever done anything right by Mr. Limbaugh. And I mean, it does say in the Bible, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. In their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So they'll murmur and complain about the government. So the last name on here is the Apostle Paul. That was the one I named. And, you know, if you remember him back in Acts 16, had his back beaten for all he did was preach the gospel. That was the only crime he was guilty of. And it says at midnight... Paul and Silas, with their backs beaten and in chains, they prayed and sang praises unto God. And it said, who heard them? The prisoners heard them. And I guarantee you they were the only ones singing and praising God at that time of night or at any time for that matter. And these guys are listening. What is the deal with these guys? (laughs) Who do we have locked up with us here? Acts 14, Paul stoned and left for dead. And the next day he's preaching the gospel in Derby. Yeah, he, he wasn't worrying about that. And in Philippians, this book that we're looking at here, he's in jail awaiting trial and he rejoices. It's all that book is all about rejoicing. And though he's sitting in jail, probably waiting to get his head cut off. His thing is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So Rush Limbaugh, Rashid Wallace, Rodney Dangerfield, would you say they are examples of Christ-like biblical character? <laughs> kind of. Or is Paul? So who wants to win the prize? I mean, I think that'd be pretty easy. Who was the odd man out on that list? So I don't think Paul complained much about the circumstances of life that came his way. Because he said what? He says, well, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. He said, in all things, I'm happy. Because God can strengthen me. The Lord Jesus Christ can strengthen him and teach him how to deal with everything. We all have a natural tendency, in case you haven't discovered that, to complain. But the thing we need to remember is to be Christian is not to be natural, not to be the way we want to be or the way everybody else is, because that's usually kind of how we excuse ourselves, even amongst ourselves. It's like, I mean, I'm just saying I'm guilty. I'm like I'm preaching to myself. But it's like, well, everybody's complaining. It's easy to do. Usually you don't get admonished or rebuked because you're doing it. Everybody does it. So we just do it. But we need to learn we want to make it through the narrow gate, don't we? And the narrow gate's not going to be this big wide door of complaining getting in there. What we have here when we look at this Philippians 2 is God commands us to do, commands, it is a command to do all things without murmuring and complaining. And so it's funny, isn't it, that murmuring and complaining, matters of the speech, are the conditions, he says, to show the world in this perverse world that we are sons of God. And if you remember back when we taught James in James chapter 3, when he deals with the tongue in that chapter, he said that is the one thing that is the sign of a perfect man. He says if you can control your tongue, you'll be able to control everything else about your spiritual condition. And you don't have to turn, but that's what he says in James 3, 2. He says, for we all stumble in many things. We sin in a lot of different ways, he said. But he goes on to say, but if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So a person that can control their little bitty tongue can control basically everything else they do is what James is saying, because we do have a a lot of trouble controlling our tongue, don't we? We just we do on a daily basis. It's something we have to watch and crucify. 
in verse 214 where it talks there, Paul says, do all things without complaining. And that word is murmurings. Literally, it means muttering like a secret debate. It's behind the scenes, behind the scenes. In other words, you got a complaint about something. Everybody kind of murmurs and talks under their breath. They don't want whoever might hear it to hear it, and especially the person probably that they're talking about. It's also called complaining. We have examples of that in the New Testament in John 7, 12, when Jesus was in Jerusalem teaching, and it says there was much, and here's that word, grumbling or murmuring among the multitudes. They're talking amongst each others. And some of them would say, well, he's a good man. And then others say, oh, no, he's a deceiver. And they're going back and forth. And there's this murmuring that takes place. They're talking about Jesus, giving all their different opinions. And in Acts 6, 1, it says that there was a complaint, a murmuring, the same word, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrews. What are they complaining about? They're saying, look, our widows aren't getting taken care of. And they're murmuring. Things aren't going right here, and they're murmuring amongst each other. And that's what he's talking about. The Philippians here, they're not complaining against God. A lot of times we're afraid to complain against God, but what do we do? We complain about our circumstances. We complain about other people and what they're doing, really. But we believe that God's in sovereign control of all things. So in a way, when things aren't going right in our life or people aren't treating us a certain way and we're not happy about all that, Really, we're complaining against the Lord without realizing it a lot of times. I read this story, this lady, a little old lady, she's going into this department store, and as she walks in, this was a few years back, a band begins to play, and this executive walks up to her, and he puts an orchid on her dress, and he hands her a $100 bill, brand new crisp $100 bill, because she was the store's one millionth customer. And they bring in television cameras and they're focusing in on her. And this reporter asked her, he said, well, tell me, just why did you come here today? And the lady hesitated for a moment. And then she says, well, I was on my way to the complaint department. That's just kind of the way things are. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 that we're to be hospitable to one another, he says, without complaint or without grudging. So we're supposed to do things for other people and not complain that they're putting us out and we have to do it. It's amazing, isn't it? A lot of times we complain about the circumstances we're in, what somebody's done. And next thing you know, and and just things aren't going good or whatever. And God just turns around and blesses us in spite of it, doesn't he? We need to have faith in God's promises, in his faithfulness. And remember the verse that we quote quite a bit here, Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good. If we know that, that will keep us from doing a lot of murmuring and complaining. It's just those big and little trials that get us a lot of times. Like I said, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Because if you think about Matthew 6, when he tells us not to worry and worrying about our finances and complaining, they kind of go hand in hand. The birds aren't worrying and they're not complaining because they just know that their creator will provide everything they need. He'll work everything out for them. Jesus reminds us we are much better than flowers, which are here one day, destroy the next, and birds that are basically considered worthless. It goes on to say, do all things without murmuring, complaining, and disputing. They kind of are similar in a lot of ways. The words exchange when there's conflicting ideas. And it's really more the idea, not so much of murmuring as 
arguing is a dispute or an argument. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul wrote, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So they're arguing about what's going on. They're not happy. There's dissension there. And this is a familiar place, but if we could look at it again today, look at a couple places back in the Old Testament with Israel in the wilderness and look at Exodus 17. We'll turn to Exodus chapter 17, read the first three verses there, and then look at a couple places in Numbers. Exodus 17, verse 1, it says this, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Whose fault was it? Moses' fault there was no water, but it says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, and this is that disputing, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then if you'll turn over to Numbers 11, and we'll look there. Numbers 11.1, 1, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabira, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. God obviously is not happy with complaining. And if you'll turn over to Numbers 14, here once again, this is kind of man, really. It's Israel, but it's, it's really, we all do this all the time. So all the congregation, Numbers 14, 1, lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? I mean, their circumstances just aren't like exactly like they want them to be. And they've already are complaining and turning against the Lord. Think of all the things he had done to get them to this point. It should be obvious. He's not going to just leave them. He didn't bring them to that point just to leave them. But they're not seeing it that way. And that's kind of the, the nature of men. And all generations, it's like, what have you done for me today? And forget about all of what's been done. That's why there's so many admonitions in the Bible for us to remember, remember. And don't forget what the Lord has done. And you have the Ebenezer stones that should be set up in our lives that we can look back on and like, this is a bad situation I'm in that it looks like I'm heading into. But you have those Ebenezer stones that look like, well, I've been in bad situations before. And God has always been faithful. He is. Amen. So it goes on to say, they're complaining, wouldn't it have been better for us to return to Egypt? And I would say, no, it wouldn't have been. But that's what they're thinking. So they said to one another, then let's select a leader and return to Egypt. It seems like they're rejecting Moses and complaining about his leadership, but really they're rejecting the Lord. That's what the Lord told Samuel too. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. In verse 5, he goes on to say, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, 
the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, now these guys are just the opposite. The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. He says, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protections departed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Did they want to hear that? Do people want to hear a positive report about the Lord when they got their hearts set on going back to Egypt? <laughs> they don't. And that's what happens. Look, you know, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. We don't want to hear that God is faithful talk. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I'll strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians will hear about that. For by your might, you brought these people out from among them and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land, which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken. So here's where God's power is really demonstrated in his long suffering towards us. It says the Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory in the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, and nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me, how? Fully. He says, I will bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So why is that there? And why are we reading that today in light of complaining? It ought to be obvious, but it does say, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, when he says, neither let any of you, and he names all the different things they did. And at the end, in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he says, nor complain. He adds that last, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition from whom the ends of the world have come. So that's examples. We're seeing the example there. We'll see what happened to them. And God is God.
I'm not saying it's too late. This isn't a message of condemnation or judgment, just the opposite. It's an admonition to all of us, isn't it? To not complain, to not be like those people that were as why has God brought me in this situation I'm in. Been better off if I'd have just never known the Lord and been back in Egypt where things seemed to be peaceful and quiet and I was beat with a whip and had to stomp out bricks. <laughs> they forget about all that. They were groaning under their affliction. I mean, I was not happy in the world and in the denominational system I grew up in, the Catholic Church. It was death. There was no life there for me. And I'm telling you, I'm glad I'm at where I'm at. I'm glad I received the light I did. So praise the Lord. If you go back to Philippians, you just need to heed the admonition the Lord's given us. The reason he's writing to them, one of the things is, they, apparently there was a, a dispute amongst the leadership if you look in chapter 1 and verse 27, back in Philippians, back, look back in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says that only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And he's admonishing them that they stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And you get another hint that there might have been a little bit of disunity there, disputings, murmurings, complaining, grudging about each other. If you look over in chapter 4, in verse 2, there apparently were a couple leaders that were having problems. And he, Paul writes, chapter 4, verse 2, I implore Judea and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So there might have been a problem there. The two leaders were kind of having a problem amongst themselves, kind of complaining about themselves. You know, John Calvin, as great as he was, and he's known to be Mr. Hardcore Calvinism and sovereignty of God and all of that election. If you ever read things he's written, I mean, he was a very godly, pious man. I read this, that when Calvin was told about Luther, now, those guys were two giants living side by side. And it says, when Calvin was told that Luther spoke ill of him, here was his answer. He said, let Luther call me a devil if he please. He says, I'll never say of him, but that he is a most dear and valiant servant of the Lord. He wasn't going to get into it with Luther. That's a good way to be, isn't it? Now, Luther's the kind of guy, he, he, and I know the way things are, that they get twisted. You say one thing, and it goes one person off, and it's totally twisted on what you said. Now, Luther was the kind of guy that would just say things off the cuff, and eh, he'd be all sparked up and saying something one day and apologetic the next. So he very well may have said something. But I just thought that was good that Calvin's like, I'm not getting into it with him. That's, oh, I want peace. I'm not going to murmur, complain, get in a dispute and an argument. No, we're brothers, and I see the things he's done. For the good of the kingdom of God. He wasn't going to get into that. You know, the disciples, well, what happened with them? They're walking on the road um, towards Jerusalem. And here's Jesus getting ready to be crucified. And, and what are they doing? I mean, he's getting ready to be hung naked on a cross and suffer on our behalf. And it says in Mark's account, they're arguing what this word is, disputing among each other about what? Who's going to be the greatest? And Paul's saying, no, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, it's just like with, with Abraham and Lot. There's not going to be strife between us. I'm not going to argue with you over grazing rights. Just you take the best and I'll take what's left. Proverbs 17, 14 says that the beginning of strife, this disputing or arguing, is like releasing water. 
And Proverbs says, therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. So sometimes you may have somebody saying something to you that you know is wrong, maybe about you or about whatever. You know you could set that right, but you know in doing that, it's just going to start an argument. And it's like sometimes it's like just let it go. Just let it go. Just change what you're going to say, you know. Or the Lord may convict you that if you say this, this is just going to start an argument and we need to be sensitive to the Lord and just stop it. Not do that a lot of times. Man, I'm talking on a wedding and saying communication is the big thing. And boy, that's a big deal in your marriage, isn't it? It's like, hey, this is just not a hill to die on. Yes, dear. (laughs) Not a problem. Another proverb 23 says it is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. And so that's what he's telling us today. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. Starting arguments. You know, John Wesley, I've talked about him some in the past, but there was a group of men in 1752, and him and this group of men, these preachers he knew, they signed a covenant between themselves. And here's a few of the points that they made that I thought were good. And in this covenant, they said that we will not listen or willingly inquire after ill concerning another. It's a covenant they signed. The second thing, that if we do hear ill of each other, we will not be forward to believe it. Third thing, that as soon as possible, we will communicate what we hear by speaking or writing to the person concerned. In other words, to see whether what's said was true or not. So they're not harboring some thought about this person that was never true to begin with. And it says that until we have done this, we will not write or speak a syllable of it to any other person. How many times do we do that? How many times does somebody tell us something about somebody else and then we just carry that around in ourselves thinking that's the way it is and we tell other people that's the way it is and it very well may not be the way it is. I've found that out way too many times. So that's what they said. They won't write or speak a syllable of it until they've checked it out. Fifth thing, they, we, neither will we mention it after we have done this to any other person. So he's saying even if we find this brother had a fault, we're not going to be going around spreading it. And isn't that also what it says in Proverbs that love will conceal a matter? Sixthly, that we will not make any exceptions to any of these rules unless obliged. So there are times, you know, especially me as pastor, I need to know something about something that's going on. It's just the way it is. Or sometimes even amongst ourselves, we just need to know certain things. You can't avoid talking about it. But they're talking about in the, where it's slander or gossip or backbiting is, is, is his point. I think it's pretty obvious what he's saying there. But, you know, wouldn't you like to have friends like that? That you knew that they'd cover for you? They're not going to spread things. Because friends know things about friends that other people don't. Even in your marriage. You don't want to think that your husband and wife is getting together with other men or women and talking about you and disrespecting you and all that. A husband should be able to trust in his wife, it says in Proverbs. She's not going to do him ill. And like we said yesterday at that wedding, they're one flesh. You're not going to hurt your own flesh in that way. You wouldn't do that about yourself. And we did that. We didn't have to worry about any of us or anyone else speaking behind our back. We think we were, had heaven on earth. Wouldn't we? Because that's what heaven will be like. Won't be any of that going on there. Looking back in Philippians 2 here, as a result of these things, in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. What's the result? That you'll become blameless 
and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we think, how could we ever be blameless? Well, I'm saying there's biblical precedent for that. God told Abraham, he said, walk before me and be blameless. Now, that doesn't mean sinless, like you could never miss it. But that's a life that's characterized by you're doing what's right. And sometimes that means having to ask God and others to forgive you. That's blameless. In Job 1.1, talked about Job. The man whose name was Job, that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Those are two Old Testament verses. In the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. How? Blameless. Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, faithful is he who has called you. And if we'll allow him, it says he will do it. So this thing that we keep setting off in the future and maybe someday, he says he will do it. He's called you. He will make you that way. It's not some unattainable goal. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, two chapters back from the one I just quoted, Paul says this, his prayer for them was, and may the Lord make you increase May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints when he comes with all his saints. So when he comes back, that's God's goal for us is to have us in love to be blameless in his sight because of the way we're talking and treating each other and other people. You know, Miss Wigglesworth was one of those people. God did a work in him. You read his biography that's written about him. I mean, he wasn't always as saintly as he was. He complained a lot about food, and God dealt with him on that. And they said his wife could never cook a bad meal after that. But he was kind of a rough, outspoken character, but he had a reputation in his neighborhood where he lived, which is where your reputation is going to be. And he was a blameless person, a holy person. And his neighbors wouldn't come around and visit him. A guy from here went over there to see him and he couldn't believe it. It's like, man, how come nobody comes to see you? Because they don't want anything to do with me. And he said, until their kids get sick or they get sick. And then they're knocking on my door wanting me to pray for them because they know God answers my prayers, which says a lot for him. It's like I said, Abraham, you know, he says, walk before me and be thou blameless. And we see signs of that. He walked in the light he had. You know, like I said, he had that strife with his nephew Lot. And he's like, here, he did the right thing in his integrity. You take the good land. I'll take what's left. Or when he goes out, he did the right thing, too. When those kings took Lot off and hauled him off and all their stuff, Abraham gets an army together and goes out after them. And they're wanting to pay him for doing that. He says, I don't want I'm not taking anything from you. No. I didn't do that. I just did that for my nephew because I don't approve of the way you guys live. He was blameless and harmless. And like I said, that is not a matter of being sinless. But we need to be to where people can not point a finger at us. No one can point a finger that we are faultless. They may not like us. They said that about Luther. They, They didn't like Luther and a lot of the stuff, but they said they can't deny that he's a good man. That's another quote that I heard Spurgeon say about that man. You don't want to have people to be able to point to you where they confess they're Christians, but look at their mouth. Look at what they sneak to look at on their phone. Look at the things they'll take when you're not looking. 
you know, and on and on and on. They'll lie when it's convenient or whatever. Or man, they'll just blow up at the drop of a hat, things like that. So we want to have our lives, he says, when our mouths are right and our lives are right, we'll be harmless and blameless. That harmless means unmixed. It means pure and innocent. Innocent as far as evil goes. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent, harmless as doves is the way he wants us to be. Romans 16, 19, Paul said this. He says, I want you to be wise in what is good, but innocent. There's the word again, innocent in what is evil. Not practicers of what is evil is what he's saying there. Innocent of evil. Now, we may have done that in the past, but that shouldn't be the way people look at you now. It should be if somebody met you now and they didn't know your past, that if you told them your past, they'd be like, I can't ever imagine you being like that. Rather than... (laughs) It figures. Right? They should be like, I can't ever believe you were like that. You wouldn't have been like that. And so he goes on to say that we should be blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Or the word is without rebuke. It also means without rebuke. And it's a word. It's a funny kind of word. It's an ah in the Greek. Ah, momos. Now, momos was this God, a carping deity is what Matthew Henry calls him. And by carping, he means he wouldn't do anything himself. And he made it his business, this deity they worshiped, the Greeks. All he would do would be find fault with everybody and everything. It could be translated this way, that ah, momos, because that's the name of a God, walk circumspectly so that momos himself would have no occasion to cavail, is the word. These means raise trivial objections at you, and that the severest censor may find no fault with you. That's what Matthew Henry said. That's how you could translate that. So this God, that that's all he does is find fault with everything and everybody. They're saying you should be walking in such a way that even that God couldn't look at you and point something out, something that you're not doing that you should be doing as a Christian. It's not that we should aim only to get to heaven, and just slip in, but we should be aiming to get there without a blot or unblemished. And like we've heard many times, those sacrificial animals, they only had to be unblemished on the outside, but where else did they need to be unblemished? They also needed to be unblemished on the inside, didn't they? To be an acceptable sacrifice to God. So if you would, turn back to the Psalms. I want to look at a couple Psalms here about what God expects us, how he expects us to live. Psalm 15 first. Let's look at three psalms. Unblameable in his sight. And look what it says here, Psalm 15. We've heard this before. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or who may dwell in your holy hill? And here's the one. He says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, and he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money as usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And he adds at the end there, he who does these things shall never be moved. I mean, that's several messages right there, isn't it? And just reading that verse. You know, a lot of times, just read the word and let the word do a work in you. 
and let the word do a work in us. You know, I was telling somebody back in the day, they didn't have sermons delivered at funerals. The, the guy might say a little bit. A lot of times they just sit there and quote the verses and let the word of God do an effect. And people would actually, out of respect, they'd listen to it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And they just would quote those verses. And let the word of God do an effect. Let the word here that we read in, in Psalm 15, let that do a work in us. All right, and let's move over just a few more to Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, look in verse 20 to 27, I believe it is. It says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. And look what he says. I was also blameless before him. So it must be possible. And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, because of that, it says the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And look what he goes on to say in verse 25. Well, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. And he says, with a blameless man, God will show himself what? Blameless. And you walk uprightly and God will be upright with you, is what he's saying there. He goes on to say, with the pure, you'll show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Just ask Haman. For you will save the humble people, he says, but I will bring down haughty looks. So we can be blameless before the Lord. When we walk before him in integrity and uprightness, and like I said, it doesn't mean sinless perfection, but God will deal that way with us and we can trust him for it. The last one, if you look over in Psalm 37, Psalm 37 and 18 to 24 there, we'll look at. Psalm 37, it says, the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They will not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine. They will be satisfied. He says, but the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish and the smoke they shall vanish away. In verse 21, he says, the wicked borrows and does not repay. But the righteous, he doesn't just steal, but he shows mercy and gives. He's not a taker. The wicked take and don't give back. But the righteous, they show mercy and give. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. And it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord will pick him up. He upholds him with his hand. And that's the way that we should live, blameless, and we should try to be honorable and blameless and have character before the Lord. And 3 John 12 John says this about Demetrius. He says he has a good testimony from all. And that should be said about all of us. You name anyone in here if you're walking, especially with the, the light we've had, the message we've heard, it should be said, that man has a good testimony. Or like Brother Terry, he's a good man. I mean, you hear that from all kinds of people. He's a good man. That's the way it should be. Going back to Philippians it says there in verse 15, it says that you may become blameless, harmless children of God without fault, where in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights 
in the world. That word for crooked means morally bent, twisted, crooked, and that's the way the world is. And at one time, we were all that way, weren't we? We were all crooked, bent, and twisted, and God's kind of put us on his rack, so to speak, and he's straightening us out, and it's painful. But he's getting all the crooked and bentness out of us. And that's why Peter told him in Acts 2, he says, be saved from this untoward or perverse generation, this twisted, perverse generation. We need to be getting saved from that, not becoming more like it, as it says. Proverbs 28, 18, listen to this. It says, he who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked, that's that same word, perverse or crooked, it says, will fall at once. Crooked and perverse. And perverse just means that you're missing, you're getting away from an accepted standard of spiritual values. And that's what we see in the world. The greed, the homosexuality, the impatience in traffic, the selfishness, just everything. The world is getting away from acceptable standards and they're making them acceptable that's the scary part of it the the things that were never accepted before are now becoming acceptable but by God's word they are just so far out of bounds it's obvious that he's going to have to judge it Acts 13 10 Elimaeus the sorcerer who was trying to get Sergio Paulus from the faith get him off that path Paul said this he says will you not cease to make Crooked, there's that word again, crooked, the straight ways of the Lord. Because that's what the gospel will do. It's taken us that were on this crooked path and bring us on the straight ways of the Lord. And it's only the devil working through society and other people that will try to get us deviating off that path so that we'll perish. That's the whole plan. That's the way it works. And that's what cable television and the Internet are doing. And I mean, some of these commercials now are obscene. The show may not be, but the commercials are on these television sets. It's ridiculous. The attorney general, he can't go after all the child pornography. He has to go after the worst of them. The Kentucky, they don't have enough time. They don't have enough resources to get them all. They have to go after the worst of them. It's just the way things are. I I remember I had these guys come in and did electrical work for me way, way back. It's been a few years back. And the guy told me, he says, you know what? We quit locking our gate. Because these guys would come in and they were busting the gate open and stealing all these electrical supplies and whatever all else. Metal, I don't know, was these people getting drug money? He said, it just got too expensive to fix the gate. We just leave the gate unlocked and open now. (laughs) It's the way they deal with it. That's the kind of world we live in. What he's telling us here is against this dark, perverse, crooked generation, what is our role to be? What are we supposed to be in the midst of that? We should shine forth, what is he saying? As lights in the midst of that darkness. Not blend in with it, you know. We, sometimes you got to say something. Somebody's doing something. Yeah, it just isn't right. If you look at one other verse here, turn back to Isaiah. I thought this was a good verse. It's not a common verse that we would read. But if you look at Isaiah 42, verses 6 to 7. And here's what the Lord says. He says, I, the Lord, have called you. In righteousness, he says, I'll hold your hand. I'll help you through this world. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. And here's he says what we should be as a light to the Gentiles. But God says, I'll hold your hand through this world. I'll get you through it. And he says that we're to be a light to the Gentiles. Verse seven to open blind eyes 
If we're not there living the life that we should be living, how are people's eyes going to be open? And to do what else? To bring prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That's really our calling, isn't it? We need to live a holy life before the Lord, but it's also so that we can be as lights to the rest of the world. And that's what Paul is telling us here, and that's what we've looked at today in these few verses in Philippians. In conclusion, this one commentator I liked, O'Brien, says this. He says, the two adjectives, blameless and without rebuke, when taken together and applied to the Philippians, signify that no one would be able to lay an accusation or blame against them because they are pure and sincere. The reference is thus to their present freedom from blame and present innocence as they did all things without grumbling or argument. In other words, the emphasis is on this is the way they should be now, not like someday we'll get there. He's saying that's what Paul's telling them. They should be blameless and with, without rebuke now that they're shining forth his lights now is, is the way it should be. So that's what we need to be in the midst of a corrupt and sinful world. Present tense holiness, shining our lights. You know, this teacher asked this little boy, he says, so cleanliness is next to what? And the boy's answer was impossible. <laughs> we can't look at it like that. You know, here's the way it should be. And I'll, I'll leave it with this illustration. This young preacher was up preaching and he was making a big deal preaching on the Ten Commandments. And he's emphasizing now shalt not steal. So the next day he's on a bus and hands the bus driver a dollar and the bus driver hands him back his change. And the preacher goes to the back of the bus and he's counting his change and he realizes, well, he gave me too much change. He gave me a dime too much. And his first thought was, well, you know, this bus company's never going to miss a dime. But anyways, he went to the front, decided instead he went to the front and gave the money to the driver. And he says, you gave me too much change. And the driver replied, yeah, I know, a dime too much. He said, I gave it to you on purpose. Because he said, I was there listening to your sermon yesterday and I watched in the mirror as you counted your change. And he said, if you had kept that dime, he said, I would have never had any confidence in any man preaching the word again. So they're watching us, aren't they? And we got to let our light shine. And we'll just read it one more time. Verses 14 and 15. He says, do all things, everything without complaining and disputing that we may become blameless and harmless Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And that's what we'll do. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word. And I ask, Lord, that, that we'll all take to heart your admonition and example and warning of the children of Israel, Lord, that, that you don't look lightly on complaining and, and that we should do all things without murmuring and complaining, especially amongst each other, Lord. And I ask that you'll help us to learn to bridle our tongues and gain control of our tongues and that you'll convict us, that you'll, you'll stop us, Lord. You'll put something in our heart, prick our heart before we begin to say something that we can learn to crucify our flesh, Lord, and truly be harmless and blameless and a testimony and a light to this wicked world that we can bring your life, the word of life that you've given us, that we can bring that to them, that they'll see that we are different. And just ask you'll make that change in our lives, especially, Lord, in these dark days that are coming, that we can shine as lights. 
Thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.